Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Philip Martin, in for Cali. This week on Under the Radar, language is perhaps our most powerful tool and has been modified, improved, and imposed on by everyone from activists to artists throughout history. From James Baldwin to the first settlers in the Plymouth Colony to beat poets to hip-hop artists. American English in all its forms has become a global and imperial language. Language is at the forefront of many cultural debates. What language should we use when educating our children? How should we classify cultural dialects or colloquial languages like black vernacular English? From the ubiquity of English to an understanding of how language might help explain our current political moment, we analyze how words both help and hurt our culture. Later in the show, poetry seems to be gaining traction with more and more Americans. From open mics to social media and a growing number of poet laureates, the art form appears to be having a moment in the U.S. The music of poetry is back, and the performance of poetry are back, and the public aspects of poetry are back. So what's driving the resurgence? We recite the evidence with a local poet and look into a popular program that stamps poems directly onto sidewalks. But first, joining me remotely, Elon Stevens, professor of humanities and Latin American and Latino culture at Amherst College, and editor of a new book, a fascinating book, in fact, The People's Tongue, Americans and the English Language. Uh, welcome, Ilan. It's a pleasure. And Patrick Cox. Patrick is the host of the popular subtitled podcast and former editor and reporter for the world. Patrick is the winner of the Linguistic Society of America's 2019 Linguistics Journalism Award. Hey, Patrick, how are you? Hi, Philip. Nice to be here. So, look, uh, gentlemen, let's. Uh, I want to start this way, and we, let's start with Elon's um, book, uh, this new uh, book that he has edited, uh, "The People's Tongue: Americans and the English Language." Elon, as you write um, in the opening of your book, to create a nation, you need a language. Uh, but many ling- linguists over the course of this nation's history, uh, as you know, while conceding that language evolves have also dismissed the linguistic contributions of the black working class, for example, Latinx, gay, underground, and other communities, in favor of variations of the Queen's English. Is your embrace of this wider polyglot of influences widely accepted by traditional English linguists? And doesn't this sort of clash with those classic measurements of uh, of the English language? I think that uh, in the third decade of the 21st century, it is clear that the multifaceted aspects of the English language in the United States are here to stay. Those that retain a purist, uh, I don't know, recalcitrant approach to 
the classical British English as the only approach to our nation's English, our, our nation's language, are in the past are looked as dinosaurs, in, especially in a moment where we are seeing ourselves moving through our diversity, through our a, a pluralistic view of who we are physically. It is also very much polyphonic that our language needs to be understood as well. Understood, yes. But uh, there's always has been, it seems, this clash with traditionalists who, while acknowledging the evolution of, of English, uh, seem to take issue with uh, some of its influences. Uh, for example, Patrick, I know that you on Subtitle have done uh, programs about uh, black vernacular English. Sometimes uh, uh, it has been referred to, and I don't agree with this term, but uh, ebonics has been one term that has been used in the past. Uh, how do you, uh, in the context of what Elon was just saying, see uh, English evolving with these other influences that have traditionally, at least been seen by traditional linguists quite often, uh, as uh, uh, somewhat anathema to uh, to the English language, as opposed to um, uh, ones that influence the English language? Well, I think generally, because English is so widely spoken in the world, and it in fact is spoken, even though there are more people speak English than any other language, it is spoken... Uh, m m most of the people who speak English, it is not their first language, it's not their mother tongue. And so in a way, the tail is wagging the dog here. And there are uh, people who are bringing other languages to English in ways that is not really happening with any other sort of, you might say, global languages like Chinese, for example. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, Patrick, your uh, uh, podcast subtitle, uh, and, uh, Ilan, your new book, uh, The People's Tongue, you, you uh, both of you seem to be in sync in terms of understanding this polyglot, if you will. And, and so I'm wondering, um, when, when you talk about the clash of, um, of cultures, and we also see that certain terms have taken on, obviously, different meanings when we talk about, uh, the, uh, for example, the so-called culture wars. Uh, which in my view should simply be distilled as ideological battles, seem to have taken a new prisoner. And that uh, prisoner is the word woke, which, is, which has sort of become a surrogate in these battles over democracy versus illiberalism. That English term woke is being used uh, derisively from the U.S. to Brazil to Germany to Hungary. How do you recover a word that once signified progress, but in the hands of the far right, it becomes something else. Um, let's start with you, Elon. It's very important to keep in mind that words are never static. They go through changes. And in fact, change is the de facto uh, essential element for any language to uh, thrive. Uh, as Patrick was saying, we borrow, we steal, that is in American English, from other languages. And we also lend words to other languages, and that give and take is essential to how a word might at one point, say woke, eh, be understood positively, and then because of the ideological tension undergo uh, a deep and throbbing transformation. The same thing happened with the term political correctness. It used to be a couple of decades ago that eh, you wanted to be politically correct, 
And now the term is derogatory. And Patrick, might that word woke be, uh, uh, has it, it, it certainly has a new meaning now. It's largely perceived negatively. Uh, it's, can, can words be recovered uh, to, uh, to basically uh, represent the, that which they were originally intended? The, like, for example, the political term woke. The, the wonderful thing about language is we cannot really predict where it's going. Um, woke may well be embraced in the future, but if it is, it'll have a whole set of new uh, sort of soft implications that will that, that, that you know additional meanings uh, or shades of meaning that we just don't know uh, at the moment. You know whether or not any of that stuff will take place. I mean, with political correct correctness, I think most of most of us have just moved on from that. Now, I, I think we're not going back to that. I'm talking here about something uh, that sort of divides people, but they're also, of course, English uh, unites people. Uh, thus, uh, uh, that's the whole point of the people's tongue, Americans in the English language, and uh, many episodes in subtitle. Uh, you talk about the connectivity of uh, language as a cultural bridge. Um, Let's talk about that more. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to play a, a quick cut cut from a person named um, um, Iyana uh, Najaroji. She's a young Kenyan-American, and here she is speaking about language as culture and the undeniable link between culture uh, and language uh, through her own experience learning her family's native language. Language is the roadmap of a culture. It shows us where its people have come from and where they are going, says Rita Mae Brown. Without language, it is completely and utterly impossible for an individual to fully understand and connect with one's culture. The reason I find that so interesting is because actually her family's native language, I understand, was Swahili. But she has embraced English as the language of, um, of choice in order to bridge uh, culture can language be both a um, one that bridges, but also of sort of subverts of other uh, cultures. For example, in this case, uh, the Swahili language uh, being convert uh, subverted. So, can it do both at once? Yeah, I think language does the, uh, does those things at once and does many other things. I think language has the DNA of a culture, but the culture is never static again. Uh, Patrick was talking about immigrants arriving to this country in the plaque on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty would have the Lady Liberty saying, give me your poor, your tired, your huddled masses. All those immigrants that have come from other countries with other languages arriving into English. And those languages are in the background they are in the spaces between words and the silences. I think it's very important to remember that when we are speaking English as a second language, we are having a, a degree of separation from it. We are within the empire, but we're also looking at the empire from the outside. And that separation gives a unique perspective that I think both enriches English and pushes it out of its boundaries. Patrick, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think of, uh, I, you know, I come from an English-speaking background, but uh, a, a very different series from gener generation to generation of Englishes. So my father was an Irish immigrant, 
uh, who spoke Irish or Hibernian English, who came to London, who came to England to to earn money. You know, I've I've sort of continued this this uh, this movement, um, and I have I now speak American English as a second accent or second language or however you want to call it. And I think that I I have what, what Ilana is talking about, where you sort of have this sense of distance and closeness at the same time. I feel that every day. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I guess you do. A lot of folks still never get used to the, uh, to, if you will, different accents. We know that from folks along the border, for example, who, who speak uh, Spanglish. Uh, this is something you talk about um, also uh, in the people's tongue and the influence of Spanglish and Latino tongues on the English language. How how deep are those uh, influences um, in the United States now? Are we're, We see it in border states, but are we seeing it uh, across the, the states, if you will, Elon? Absolutely, we're seeing it all over. We used to call those um, kind of hybrid or in between languages, the languages of the U.S.-Mexican border, though they are in the inner city, they are in the rural landscape, they are in the classroom, they are in the kitchen, they are in the playground. Spanglish, all those mixes are a statement of arrival from of immigrants that are entering the English language, but that resist or delay the abandonment of the original song or their heritage or their roots. And they bring many words into the English language by doing so. The amount of Spanish that we American in Americans speaking the English language have incorporated in the last 50 years, it's enormous. And it is uh, accounted in how Merriam-Webster or the OED uh, constantly incorporates new terms uh, like lasso, like taco, like piñata, like burrito. It is impossible right now to speak the English language without acknowledging that not only 65 million Latinos live in the United States, but that American English has been Hispanicized by their presence day in and day out. If I could add just one thing to that, um, it also has gone the other way. And this is what makes Spanish so unique in North America. Um, there is a, a, a professor at Sonoma State University in California called Robert Train, who, who has done some research on letters that were written um, in the 19, uh, sorry, in the 1830s uh, between Hugh Reed. He was a, a Scottish adventurer who, who ended up in Southern California, just north of Los Angeles, or although Los Angeles at the time was just a little pueblo and everybody spoke Spanish there. Um, and he wrote letters to another English speaking rancher um, who lived in the neighborhood, both of them, or in, in the area, and both of them uh, were married to Spanish speaking women. And over the course of time, um, Robert Train as, as, as observes and has noted how in their correspondence, more and more Spanish words entered this, this, their largely English correspondence. They were talking about, you know, business uh, items, things that they would buy and sell. And it was quite clear that most of this buying and selling, most of this day-to-day -day life they had was in Spanish. And so rather than 
you know, translate it back to English for the purposes of this correspondence between the two of them. They just wrote it in Spanish to each other. So, you know, it's uh, the shoe was very much on the other foot uh, when it came to to Spanglish, an early form of Spanglish in, in that mm -hmm. case. I always find it interesting, the resistance uh, that you hear to the to language um, in in a lot of cultures. I've uh, where someone uh, in France might be. Um, perplexed or angry that someone is speaking uh, their native tongue and not uh, French. And certainly in the United States, we hear people uh, here and you hear about folks up getting upset with someone saying uh, uh, sp saying something in Spanish and not in, in English. Anyway, that's uh, that's just an observation about the sort of resistance. Uh, and But it's also a comment about English as... Um, as sort of an, an imperial uh, concept, like any language can be. And I'm just wondering, uh, have we overstepped uh, in terms of the role of English worldwide? Uh, is it, I know it's unifying, but it can also be divisive, am I right? No, it's totally divisive. If you, if you travel through Latin America or Africa or uh, Asia, people will both feel in depth with the English language because they are able to communicate with those that are coming from the outside or they can connect and access the global culture through that American English. But they also feel a resistance and a resentment that that uh, American English is, is discoloring, is transforming their ecosystem and that uh, by becoming global, they are losing that a local aspect that uh, is infused with nostalgia. I think that um, for a language to survive, that language has to go outside of its own confines. And that happens through imperial quests, through wars, through domination, through immigration, through popular culture, in so many different ways. And uh, with the world so connected, through social media, through, um, you know, tourism, it is impossible at this point to look at languages and have a purist, a protective approach and not be seen as tied to a past that is no more. Really, languages have never been pure. The desire to keep them pure is an ideological strategy of certain groups to perceive a certain club as a needing protection. But languages like to be messy, just like democracy. They need to get into trouble. And that's how language expands itself. I've, yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've seen examples of that, for example, in Vietnam, uh, where uh, certain words uh, uh, have taken on a meaning of their own. And, th and that is the residue from the, uh, from the war. I do remember coming across folks who were who would introduce different words that were clearly uh, had been introduced uh, during the 60s and 70s during the Vietnam War. And I think you find that everywhere, where, where folks just sort of leave these things behind like baggage. Um, what about hip-hop culture? Hip-hop uh, is a worldwide culture now. And in a lot of hip-hop, even in um, the Middle East and places like Norway, so on and so forth, they'll throw in a, an English word here and there, uh, in order to uh, to amplify the um, uh, the piece they're singing, Patrick, talk about hip hop uh, in its uh, in its English version uh, or English forms and the influence that it's had uh, around the world. Well, it's had a huge influence. I mean, hip hop is 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 uh, 
in many ways the most successful American export of the past, you know, few decades. Uh, at a time when a, you know, a lot of American exports um, have been either fading or they've been around so long, like Coca-Cola, that you know that they've no longer ceased to sort of be seen as as American. So I mean, it's a, it's actually in terms of soft power, uh, it's it's fabulously influential um i think the 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 use of english words in local i don't think that's a a, a hip-hop phenomenon that's that's just a popular culture phenomenon it, it it crops up everywhere it's just that hip-hop is such a popular culture a popular form format that you know you you see it there a lot um there are so many examples of fabulously innovative uh, hip hop in various different um, types of uh, it, all over the world. I mean, you have throat singing hip hop, you know, uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to think about, um, in, you know, the, the, the use of English words uh, as being sort of an issue that is specific to that. I, I think that, you know, where we're, it's it's that that's just the nature of the beast. Well, I thought about it because in the people's tongue, Americans and English language, um, Elon, you uh, reference hip hop artists uh, and the impact of lyrics like it's uh, like a jungle sometimes make me keep from going under, <laughs> which uh, which started a lot of the hip hop um, recitation and the uh, and the the cadence and the language of uh, of inner cities were started re being repeated over and over again in um, in rhyme. Why did you feel it was a watershed, and you seem to suggest it was a watershed moment uh, in terms of the English language evolution? Well, for starters, music is, uh, at least on the surface, a, a non-political ambassador that travels freely across cultures. Whereas we put, uh, we build walls to stop people from coming in. We expand through radio stations, through all sorts of uh, musical devices, the spread of uh, music as a way to connect with other parts of the world. And what is fascinating to me about hip hop is that in a country that resists and penalizes black culture in a variety of ways, it also feels an envy and it steals from it constantly. It is hip hop, it is rap that uh, becomes the great export of American culture to other parts of the world. Black artists singing, improvising that are embraced worldwide, whereas here uh, uh, an innocent man in an inner city can be pushed down by the police and not be allowed to breathe. That is fascinating. It's fascinating that American culture has a mainstream that is constantly feeding from the margins of that society, call it hip hop, call it Spanglish, call it Chinglish. In the moment that cadence, those rhythms, those words enter the middle class, it is the, the outskirts of that society that need to reinvent other aspects to keep the culture going. It's a, it's a give and take. And then the global culture just follows what uh, those exports in America are uh, meant to be. And uh, American culture reigns supreme that way. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin, filling in for Kelly Crosley. And I'm speaking with Elon Stevons, editor of The People's Tongue, Americans in the English Language, and Patrick Cox, host of the Subtitle Podcast. 
We're discussing the global impact of the English language. Speaking of walls that you just referenced, uh, Elon, Trumpism. <laughs> um, you talk about Trump and his tweets in your book. Uh, and Trumpism, uh, first of all, that's a new word in itself, of course, uh, as is the acronym MAGA. Uh, how, have, how has Trump uh, impacted the English language? Um, and in, in, has that impact uh, been... I know it's been widespread, but uh, what's been resistance to it, I should ask? What's the confluence, if you will, with misinformation? I think uh, that uh, Trump and Trumpism have uh, unleashed attention in the English language that was there already felt uh, prior to 2016, but that now can be more tangible, more palpable. It, and it is the tension between how we use the language to bring others together and how we use the language to pull people away from what American culture might be. The man was uh, a genius in condensing messages and injecting them with all sorts of hatred and animosity in a way that uh, people followed it, followed him passionately. Well, that certainly makes sense. Patrick, uh, the uh, the role of Trumpism, you've referenced this uh, or talked about this actually in subtitle. Uh, what uh, What's your view of, of its overwhelming impact uh, in terms of uh, on, the, on the English language? Well, I actually went back um, in history and I went back to the German language to take a look at this. And um, before, um, before <laughs> I should preface this by saying, most people who raise the Nazis, uh, uh, especially in association with Trump, I think get it wrong. Uh, but, but the reason that I looked at what the Nazis did with the German language was because they were very, very clear, extreme. Uh, but in their ex in their extreme views, they their use of language became extremely clear, and their use of dog whistling, which is something that Trump and many others, none of them Nazis, have done. Um, the 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 Nazis took one word. Uh, the word is folk, V-O-L-K. It means folk. Um, and once upon a time, it was a kind of a neutral word meaning people, and it meant nothing more than that. And over time, it came to mean German. Um, and the German sense of that originally was probably white German, because there wasn't anybody else apart from that. But it probably also include, included Jews, although there was a lot of anti-Semitism before the Nazis. When the Nazis came along, they turned this word around. They they created uh, more than 100 compounds of this word. So they just added suffixes, prefixes. Uh, they turned uh, one of the, the, the most potent versions that they, they uh, came up with was a word called Volkish, which is a, a, basically an adjective of it, an adjective um, derived from Volk, and they turned that into ethnic German. It created a whole bunch more that a lot of them are, uh, uh, are quoted in a, a wonderful diary kept by uh, a guy, uh, a Jewish guy called Victor Klemperer, who managed to survive the Nazis. Uh, I, I would I would really encourage anybody, everyone to read uh, what he wrote about language because it, it tells you everything that you need to know about dog whistles. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think that once, once we what people are doing 
you know, on a tweet by tweet basis, it takes the sting out of so much of of what is being said, what is being written. See, all of this is so amazing. The the when you hear about the impact of the um the in the evolution of language. Uh, it really makes us understand um, more on a day-to-day basis uh, what we're what we're hearing and what and, and what it means. And the question I have for the two of you now, of course, is where do we go? What's the what's the next um, step in the or evolution of the English language? Where we go is where we are and where we have been. The English language, American English, um, will continue to expand. We might be witnessing a decline of the American empire. And with that uh, contraction of American English, uh, other languages will be uh, gaining more uh, space in the international stage. And uh, it might be that in 200 or 500 years, English as we know it today will be seen as German does or French does a language that was very important at a particular moment, but was replaced by Chinese or Mandarin. That's the rise and fall of cultures and of empires. And yet it is in decline, if that is where we are right now, that languages tend to produce some of the most astonishing works of art in moments of transition, if moments of crisis and desperation. And uh, my belief is that American English has created such a texture to say so many different things in such profound and lasting ways that uh, wherever we might be going, what we are producing right now will have a lasting uh, impact on future generations. Unbelievable. This is amazing. Look, gentlemen, I really appreciate this. The, uh, uh, the influence of languages on English and English's um, influence worldwide. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks so much, Philip. Elon Stebbins is a professor of humanities in Latin American and Latino culture at Elmhurst College and editor of the People's Tongue, Americans in the English Language. And Patrick Cox is the host of the subtitle podcast and former editor and reporter for PRI's The World. Coming up, poetry is much more than just two roads diverged in a yellow wood. In Boston and throughout the country, it appears poetry is undergoing a renaissance. That's next. I'm Philip Martin, in for Callie Crosley. This is Under the Radar.